Hello, you are tuned into episode 32 of the Great Lakes Horror Company, as presented by Library of the Damned. I'm Monica S. Kubler, and I'll be both host and interviewer today. As always, if you enjoy this podcast and what we do, please consider leaving us a rating or review wherever you snag our show. And if you want to take your support one step further, you can make a pledge on our Patreon at patreon.com slash libraryofthedamned. Even $1 a month helps, and all proceeds go towards improving our program. Now, on to our main course. On today's episode, we'll be talking to Grady Hendricks, author of 2014's Horror Store, 2016's My Best Friend's Exorcism, and of course, most recently, the nonfiction book Paperbacks from Hell, the twisted history of 70s and 80s horror fiction. Grady spent the fall touring North America in support of this new book, and he'll be stopping by the Royal Cinema in Toronto on Thursday, November 30th, to deliver his oral history of this mind-melting time in horror publishing. Before we talk about the upcoming event, let's get to the bottom of what's so weird, wacky, and wonderful about mass-market horror from this era. Grady, when and how did you first become aware of the largely untold history of horror fiction from the 1970s and 80s? Well, I didn't realize there was a history of it. You know, I was just going into used bookstores, like, and not fancy used bookstores, like, you know, paperback swap shops and stuff, which I really love. And you'd see shelf after shelf after shelf of romance novels and westerns. And, uh, and then you'd see all these horror novels and they were all mostly mass market paperbacks. And I didn't have a clue what any of them were, you know, who was J.N. Williamson? Uh, what was, uh, you know, Predators or Slime? And so I started reading them almost at random and spent a long time just sort of randomly grabbing books and reading them to see what was out there. Uh, and I was writing about it for tour. And um, my editor at Quirk was sort of like, oh, you know, have you ever thought, would you be interested in pitching us? Uh, a history, like a book that, that tells about these. And I was like, oh, sure. And he didn't even couch it as a history. It's just sort of a book about these books. And I thought, great. And um, I think he was sort of imagining some kind of like coffee table picture book, you know, with just the focus on the covers. But once they sort of went for this, I was like, I've got to put this in some kind of order. And so I worked with this guy, Will Erickson at Too Much Horror Fiction, which is a great blog that covers sort of horror paperback history. And we realized that there was this story of these books. There was this beginning in the late 60s and this death in the mid-90s. And so it sort of came together. But God, man, it was like finding a lost continent and mapping it in the dark. Why should today's genre fans be interested in these largely out-of-print mass-market novels? Well, you don't have to be. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with people who don't have any interest in, you know, uh, crabs, human sacrifice, or, um, you know, uh, lost futures or the chindi or something. But to me, I'm always looking for stuff to read. I'm always looking for stuff to read that's awesome. And when you realize that you're not just limited to recent releases, that there's a history of this stuff and authors who've been forgotten that are amazing, like Barry Wood with The Tribe and Joan Sampson with The Auctioneer and books that really should be remembered, that have been forgotten, you get a real rush out of it. You know, it's not just you're reading a good book, but you're reading a good book not many people know about. You're reading a good book and you're also saving it from sort of, you know, eternity's trashy. Now, you sort of touched on this with your previous answer, but can you tell, um, for the uninitiated, can you tell us what sort of themes and plot elements were biggest in these books? Sure. I mean, you know, what was interesting is 
there wasn't really horror before 1967. Like horror as a genre really didn't exist. There was suspense, there were thrillers, but there wasn't horror. And then between 67 and 71, you got three books that were huge bestsellers. Uh, Rosemary's Baby, uh, Thomas Tryon's The Other, and uh, William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. Um, and those books launched this boom. I mean, publishers suddenly saw there was gold in horror novels. And they, they, the first big round of them were a lot of possession books like The Exorcist or, or, you know, Satan books like Rosemary's Baby. And then around 76, you know, you had The Omen came out and it had a really popular novelization that sold millions and millions of copies. And also The Other, which had come out before, was also an evil kid book. So suddenly you had all these evil kid books. And then the Amityville Horror came out and there were all these haunted house books. And, you know, before that, there had been Jaws and James Herbert's The Rats from England in the same year. And there were all these animal attack books. And so they just kept going from one hit book which spawn a million little mutant puppies. And, and there would just be these wave after wave of these things. And they sort of all climaxed with, um, the last big boom book, which was, uh, Thomas, uh, Harris's, uh, Silence of the Lambs, which, really kicked off this trend for serial killers. And that's what killed the boom, to be honest. As you mentioned, so many of these books have some really strange, outrageous, and often politically uh, incorrect uh, plot lines and elements. And one can hardly imagine any of them birthed in the uh, more socially aware time like today. What do you think it was about the 70s and the 80s and the publishing industry of that period that gave rise to this wild boundary-pushing, taboo-baiting literature? Well, the first thing was that, you know, these books weren't designed to be read by snobs in bookstores. These were books that were sold on drugstore racks and bus station racks and, you know, newsstand racks. And they were designed for sort of the general reader. People assumed they would be read by truck drivers and construction workers and doctors and housewives and this wide range of people. And they wanted to give people a good time. They didn't want to bore them. So they had sex in them. And violence, because, you know, that sells, that's popular. Uh, those have always been exciting, always all the way back to the beginning. And they didn't feel a need to be pretentious about it because they wanted these books to be accessible to a general reader. Um, and so there's a lot of sex in these books, a lot more than we sort of expect today, because that was viewed as very marketable at the time. Um, and then, you know, it was also pre-AIDS. And you really had this big boom in vampire fiction in the 80s that was largely sort of, I think, a reaction in part to AIDS, you know? Like suddenly blood was dangerous. Getting close to someone was dangerous. Exchanging fluids was dangerous. Sex was dangerous. And I think it's no surprise that you all of a sudden had this wildly popular genre of books about people who loved blood, who reveled in it, who crossed that boundary, who violated that taboo, who got close to you, who got so close to you, they ate part of you. Um, and, and so, and so that's part of it. And also, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about these books is, you know, in a way they did violate taboos and things that we would think of as not politically correct. But I'll tell you, man, there was a huge boom in Native American sort of curse fiction in the mid uh, 80s, where it was, you know, cursed Indian burial mounds and Indian uh, graveyards being uh, di disrespected and, you know, uh, artifacts being stolen and unleashing these curses. And on the one hand, well, it's really not politically correct. On the other hand, where's Native Americans in literature today? You know, at least in the 80s, like we were being taught in horror novels to be really, really scared about messing with them and getting on their bad side. 
Now, do you think there's any place in contemporary horror for a revival of these types of stories, or are they truly a product of their time? Well, I mean, it's hard to, there, I mean, this, this boom was thousands and thousands of titles and dozens of different genres. And so it's hard to say, you know, I mean, it, it can't ever happen again, just because of the way publishing works, right? Like we don't have a paperback market like this anymore. You can't have a boom where books that are considered disappointments are selling 80 and 90,000 copies. Like now a hit book is 30,000 copies, 50,000 copies. Um, and and you don't have this market that's been built up for 20 years that's really eager for horror and for more of the of sort of similar things. So that's one thing. Uh, and also publishing's a lot more consolidated. You don't have all these different imprints competing against each other. But I I mean, you know, it's hard to say like would these books come back? I don't know. Not like they were. I mean, they really these were written for a different audience. And so I don't think that would happen. Um would Native American curse books come back? Unlikely. I think people are too squeamish about writing about a culture that's not their own. And I haven't seen a lot of Native American authors eager to write these. I mean, there's definitely some Native American horror authors. Stephen Graham Jones is a fantastic author. Uh, but, um, and, and, and you do see some of this stuff coming up. Uh, Hari Kunzru's White Tears is a really great horror novel about sort of racism and cultural appropriation, but you're not going to see a boom like we had, you know, where it's sort of this anything goes kind of thing. It, it just, that's just not how publishing goes now. Now, as I've mentioned at the top of the interview, Grady will be in Toronto at the Royal Cinema with paperbacks from hell on Thursday, November 30th. If you haven't snagged yourself a ticket yet, you can get one from online ticket seller universe.com or just search paperbacks from hell live on Facebook. Grady, can you give us a hint of what's in store for the folks who come out to this live event? Mayhem, mostly. Um, you know, I do a live version of this book, and it's about, it's a little over an hour, like an hour five, and I pack in the entire history. Uh, there are slides, there are pictures of artwork that's never been seen on these covers before. I think the show lasts about... 65 minutes and I think there's 192 slides. Um, it moves fast. There are songs in it. You'll have to hear me sing uh, more than once, unfortunately. I do some accents that are so really just incredible. I think any aspiring actors in the audience will, will just give up after hearing how masterfully I replicate a British or German accent. So it's really not just a show packed with Nazi leprechauns and killer crabs. It's fun for the whole family it's fun for the whole family plus other families like this is this is everything you ever wanted probably in your life in 65 minutes most people kill themselves when it's well done. i already have my tickets so i'm definitely looking forward um are you going to be signing and selling books there yes books will be for sale i will sign anything anyone puts in front of me so i i have no scruples oh, this is that. this is a genre show be careful what you uh Careful what you wish for. <laughs> horror writers and horror fans listen to this, and I'm sure they could find some very strange and uncomfortable things to bring to the signing. It is impossible to make me uncomfortable, so bring it. Okay, now, if someone's been listening to this podcast um, and has really decided they want to check out some of these novels we've discussed today, apart from picking up Paperbacks from Hell, which gives a great overview of the era and its major titles, and is, of course, out now from Quirk Books, how can they start to seek out some of these out-to-print books? Can you give us a very quick primer for the new-to-collecting collector, if you will? 
Sure. I mean, you know, collectors, I'm not so sure about. Like, th that makes me nervous because I see some of the prices on these things getting really high. But if you want to read these books, there's a lot of people who are bringing them back into print. And there's so many authors in here who are so phenomenal. I mean, uh, Valancourt's bringing a lot of them back into print, which is a great publisher. Um, Centipede Presses, too. Uh, but it, um, and even Penguin Classics has been bringing some folks back. But, you know, if you're going to start out, I really recommend anything by Michael McDowell. Most people know him as the guy who wrote Beetlejuice and uh, Nightmare Before Christmas for Tim Burton. Uh, but he wrote some amazing novels. Uh, the Elementals is fantastic. And he wrote the Blackwater Saga, which I think of as like 100 Years of Solitude, a paperback originals. And those are both reissued recently from Valancourt. He's a Southern novelist, but his stuff is very horrific and very gothic and dark. It's really fabulous. Um, Ken Greenhall is a guy who was just treated like dirt his entire life. I mean, even his own agent fired him for being too old when he was 55. But he wrote a series of novels that I think are really, I think he's the heir to Shirley Jackson's sort of clean, chilly, precise diction. Uh, his books, Elizabeth or Hellhound or Childgrave, I think they're all out from Valancourt as well again, and they're really all worth it. Uh, see if you can find a copy of Joan Sampson's The Auctioneer, which is basically almost like Cormac McCarthy writing, rewriting Stephen King's Needful Things. Barry Wood wrote a book called The Tribes, which is a fantastic novel that's really heartbreaking about a killer golem on the loose in Long Island. Um, I mean, there's so many places to start, but really, you know, get the book and go to a used bookstore and start grabbing stuff off the shelves or go to Valancourt and look what they're putting out because they have really, really good taste. And a lot of these folks I talk about are, have newish uh, editions uh, from them. Now, those are all very good recommendations, but I'm kind of curious of all the books that you've read in researching paperbacks from hell, and I've interviewed you a couple times now, so I know there were many, more than many, in fact. Um, <laughs> if you had to recommend one to our listeners who are an amazing, dedicated, super well-read bunch of horror fans, which one would you consider a must read for them and why? Okay, well, I would say that there is a set of two novellas by Elizabeth Engstrom. Um, and they're called, they're uh, issued under the title When Darkness Loves Us. The first novella is called When Darkness Loves Us. The second is called Beauty Is. And they are phenomenal. I mean, I'd recommend them for two reasons. One is they're great. When Darkness Loves Us is about a woman who's pregnant and she's just gotten married and she lives on a farm and she's so happy and she winds up trapped underground in their, their house and in sort of the basement. And she finds that the only way out is to sort of go down this extra tunnel that she believes leads to a different like root cellar. And it doesn't. And time passes and things get really twisted. It is a really, really disturbing story. Uh, it's, it's one of the, the grossest and most upsetting books about sort of motherhood and revenge and humiliation and pain I've almost ever read. And then Beauty Is, is this really, I mean, it's also kind of upsetting, but it's almost like Flowers for Algernon, just through a more horrific lens. And it's a really gorgeous, heartbreaking story. And these are both in this, this volume called When Darkness Loves Us. And I'd recommend it because A, both these stories hit hard in their own ways. 
both of them are really sort of different from anything. There's no zombies, there's no vampires, there's no killer dogs. Um, so they're really different genre-wise, but also they're by a woman. And I feel like, you know, a lot of people feel like horror is dominated by male authors. And I really feel from my heart and based on everything I've read that horror has been a woman's genre from the beginning. I mean, the first horror novel we still read is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, I think the two big horror novels of the 20th century are Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House and Toni Morrison's Beloved. Uh, and there's so many of these female authors who wrote great stuff who've been completely forgotten. Um, and, and, you know, I think because there's more male authors in the mix than, than female authors, like maybe more of them survive, just the law of averages. But we've lost so many great female authors. And Elizabeth Engstrom is one of them who I really feel like should be better known than she is. Well, there you have it, listeners. There's your Great Lakes Horror Company homework for the next month. Find those books, read those books, and let us know what you thought of those books. And thank you so much for speaking with us today, Grady. Oh, hey, it's my pleasure, man. I could go on for hours. And you can buy a ticket to see me do that. Yes, you can. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, you can learn more about the twisted history of horror fiction with Grady Hendricks at the Royal Cinema on November 30th. Check the show notes on this episode for where to buy tickets, because trust me, if you're a diehard devotee of horror, you don't want to miss this. Thanks for listening. If you've liked what you've heard today, you can subscribe to The Great Lakes Horror Company on iTunes, Google Music, or Stitcher. And you can support the making of this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash libraryofthedamned. You can also find us on Facebook, just search for us by name, and on Twitter at GL Horror Podcast. If you have a question, comment, or idea for a future show, please email it to glhc at horror-writers.ca. The Great Lakes Horror Company is sponsored by LibraryOfTheDam.com. The show is produced by Sefra Jerome, Monica S. Kubler, and Andrew Robertson. Our theme music has been provided by Leslea Kierwurst. <laughs>